Well, I tell you, this uh, parent and child dedication time is very special to me. And uh, I trust it is to the moms and dads that participate. I, I hope it is for you also. I had the privilege just a couple of weeks ago, maybe it was last week, um, to attend the graduation party for a young lady that we dedicated in this church uh, 18 years ago. And what a special thing to have been able to see, you know, the developmental things go on in her life through the years and the way that God used her mom and her dad in her life. And uh, we just today are filled with a sense of anticipation and hope about what might happen with these children that you've seen today. So anyway, thanks for participating in that with us. In just a moment, we're going to be looking in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. If you want to open yours up, you will uh, appreciate the opportunity to read along with us. We'll be in chapter 10, Gospel of Matthew. I want to begin with a question, if you think with me for just a moment. Have you ever been a part of a great team or a great organization? And I underscore the word great. I know you've been a part of teams. I know you've been a part of organizations. But have you ever been a part of a great one? And what goes in to something becoming great? A couple of weeks ago, we uh, celebrated the life as well as mourned the passing of uh, John Wooden, the famed coach from uh, UCLA. For those of you that don't care about sports, uh, this man led the college basketball program there to win 10 national championships in 12 years. It's an unprecedented, unmatched kind of accomplishment. And uh, truly, he had some of the greatest teams uh, of any sport that he was able to put together and, and put on a, on a court to compete. You can imagine through the years, he just passed away, age 99, uh, through the years he had been asked over and over and over again, Coach, how is it that you have put together great teams? How is it that you've been able to win all of these championships? And uh, Coach Wooden's response always surprised those that did not know him well. Because he would not talk about basketball. When they said, how did you put together a great team? He never gave a basketball answer. Such as, well, we, you know, did this kind of strategy and we worked these kinds of drills and fundamentals and all that. He never talked about that. Rather, he talked about the stewardship that he had to build high school graduates into men. In other words, he wasn't focused on championships. He was focused on making champions, on building men. The world of difference. Talk about how to have a great family. You're talking about how you build into one another's lives. And so he would focus on matters of character, integrity, honesty, selflessness, and humility. He had all kinds of little codes and rules that no other team bothered with. It seemed too old school to them, but he was about building men. 
who would relate to one another in such a way that they became a team and in the sum of their parts win. Uh, I could talk about John Wooden all day, so let me move on because he is one of my heroes. Have you ever been a part of a great church? What would be involved in a church being great? And I realize just uh, asking that question, the knee-jerk response for some would be, I don't think there is any such thing. I've been around too many of them. Well, if uh, you haven't seen one, then uh, more on the dream stage. How does one get there? How would a church become great? And let me say a few things that are very obvious to some and maybe uh, not so obvious to others. Uh, The first is this. A great church has nothing to do with facilities. Absolutely zero, nada, nothing to do with facilities. I have seen some of the most marvelous facilities in the world. And the churches that gathered in those buildings were dead and anemic and lifeless. You say, well, it must then have great preachers and great programs for kids and youth and families and so on like that. Well, I've seen a lot of churches with great preaching and great programs, but they weren't great churches. They could bicker, they could fight, they could be petty, they could uh, get in all kinds of divisive kinds of disagreements. It was an ugly thing to see. You go, okay, well then I, I would say a great church is where lives are being helped and transformed. And if you know me at all, you know that's my passion. My passion is about people being helped and their lives being transformed. But that can happen with some individuals and it not be a great church that they're a part of. Have I sufficiently whetted the appetite to get at the answer? What are we talking about when we talk about a great church? And I want to suggest to you that a great church is a collection of people who are passionate about Jesus and passionate about carrying out his mission. You say, okay, so how do you get at that? Well, you just do the little uh, takeaway exercise what would you keep if everything else got taken away so imagine that some foreign power overcame the United States of America now we were under dictatorial rule and the dictator said no more churches no more faith throughout the land and I'll only make one exception every congregation may keep one thing but everything else goes away What would you keep? Would you keep the building? No way. I mean, even if it was the Sistine Chapel with the priceless art all over the ceilings and walls, what difference would that make if you couldn't have anything else with respect to the faith in Jesus Christ? Would you keep the professional staff, the talking heads and the leaders of various programs? 
No. Would you keep the programs? No. Friends, the only thing that would be worth keeping, if I could only keep one thing, it would be Jesus and his mission. Because if it was Jesus and his mission, then eventually all those other things would likely come back anyway. Eventually. A great church is a collection of people who are passionate about Jesus. And passionate about his mission. So what is that anyway? And what does that look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Let's look at Matthew's gospel. We're going to be in chapter 10. We'll pick it up in verse 16. We are in a series of experiences with Jesus and sayings of Jesus that have to do with his mission. And this is what he uh, says in verse 16 and following. Behold, I am sending you. Now, who is the you? You have to back it up and see what just preceded this text. We talked about it in here last Sunday uh, when he had a call to mission. He called men and women to follow him and to do with him his mission. I'm not going to revisit all that, but uh, that's who he's speaking to. Those that he had called to do life with him, he said, now I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father, his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? All right, there's a lot of stuff in there, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I will talk a little bit quicker than I have been, and so you'll want to listen a little quicker. And um, we'll get right into it in terms of talking about the cost of Jesus' mission. Keep your Bible open because I'm going to walk right through these verses, and you'll want to follow along with me. Now, when we start talking about the cost of Jesus' mission, we have to back up and just remind ourselves, what is that mission? Before I start talking about the cost, I've got to know what I'm, I'm paying a price for. We spent the entire Sunday on that last week, so I'm only going to say a couple of sentences about that, and that's this. The mission is to proclaim 
the gospel. Gospel is good news. That's what the word literally means. What's good news? Well, you have to say, what's bad news? The bad news is that God has created all of us to have relationship with himself and to do life with him, but we've rebelled against him. We have created a coup against God. We tried to take control of all of life that he is sovereign over. And so we, in standing in opposition to God, he has had to judge and condemn and separate himself from us. That's the bad news. We're all rebellious, condemned, separated from God types of people. All of us. Now you ready for good news? The good news is that because God loves us and because he's full of compassion, he came to be one of us in the person of Christ, lived a perfect life, then took all of our sin upon himself and died a substitutionary death. He died as a substitute for you, for me, that paid the penalty for our sin so that we can be forgiven and we can be reconciled with God. That's the good news. Bad news, condemned, separated from God forever. Good news, forgiven, reconciled to God forever. Our mission, should you choose to accept it, is to go anywhere and everywhere that we do life and share good news. Help as many people as possible see there's hope, there's help, there's life, and it's all connected to God. And here's how you get there. That's the mission. That's the good news. Now, what's it cost to do that? That's what today's text deals with. And the first thing that uh, Jesus said is, uh, here's what it's going to cost you. I'm going to send you which is an awesome thought in and of itself that God would be invested enough in you and those around you that he would send you another day. He said, I'm going to send you as sheep in the middle of wolves. Well, thank you very much. How vulnerable is that? Sheep have absolutely... No wherewithal to defend themselves or to fight back against wolves. In other words, he says, I'm sending you into situations that you can't do a thing about. I'm sending you into situations like a sheep who must have a shepherd to provide the protection and the guidance that the sheep will need so that the wolves don't devour them. So that's the first thing you need to get about the cost. It's risky. It's dangerous. And you have to decide, is it worth my one and only life to be in mission with Jesus? Now, remember, we're talking about how do you have a great church? Have you ever wanted to be a part of a great church? Great churches are made up of people who have great commitments to his great commandment, which is the mission. So. He says, not only am I going to send you amongst these wolves, 
But I, I will also, uh, also send you before various governors and kings. So what's he talking about? To translate that into the culture of his day, he's basically saying uh, all of these religious institutions around you and the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests and so on like that, I'm going to send you into their midst. And as you share good news, as you are my representative, my ambassador to, to bring gospel to people, they're going to oppose you. They're going to take a stand against you. They're going to be derisive and jeer and uh, sometimes they're going to hurt you. And uh, they will oppress and oppose. And not only that, not only will that happen in kind of this religious context, it will happen in a governmental context. The government will oppose and oppress and try to stop and thwart your efforts. Now, translate that to today, because we're not so much harassed and, and, and bothered by Pharisees. I, I haven't even seen a Pharisee for a while, I don't think. But, well, actually, I did last week. But um, <laughs> we are surrounded by people who have been hurt by religion. And because of that, they tend to hurt people who are on mission. We also have people who are in other faiths that contend with our faith. And then we have those that basically are anti-faith. And they contend with us or anybody else who are of faith. And you run into this all the time. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that likes to be liked. You like to be liked? I, I, I like for people to think well of me. I, I like to be popular. I wish you would let me be popular with you. But I don't always get what I want. But not too long ago, I served... Um, on jury duty. And you know how they, they go about qualifying you for jury duty. You, uh, if they end up calling your number, uh, then you go and sit in this pool. And uh, whatever the case is, the attorneys begin asking a variety of questions to see if they want you sitting on their jury or not, which I never sweat. I've been called several times, but I've never been selected because the minute they hear I'm a minister, they basically don't want me, which is, which is fine. I bring books with me and I go back out and study. But uh, so I go uh, the, the last time I was summoned, I go and I, I'm selected and I go into this pool and they begin, you know, asking all these questions and they haven't gotten 12 yet. And they come to me and they start asking me all this personal stuff and I'm telling them and they end up selecting me. I was shocked. And so now I'm sitting on this jury of 12 and we're handed a case and we go, uh, we hear all these arguments and we go and deliberate these kinds of things. It goes on for five days. And, uh, you know, everybody in the room knows I'm a minister because all that comes out in discovery when they're, you know, selecting the jury. And I know pretty much what everybody else does. And we, we've heard all this personal stuff about each other. And so everything's been kind of cordial. Right. And not not particularly friendly, but cordial because we're there to do a task. And so we're listening to evidence and then we're discussing it and so on like that. Now, the case has been argued fully. It's been handed off to us with instructions and we are supposed to come back with a verdict. How many of you have been there? You know what we're talking about with this deliberation thing? Uh, you feel the weight of the responsibility, and things can get a little bit intense. And so we were uh, talking about the various arguments to the case and the evidence, and it was real quickly apparent that there was a pocket of people that were convinced about the verdict in one way, and they were being fairly persuasive with everyone else. And I thought I heard a train whistle in the distance. 
And it was just kind of being, I thought, railroaded. And so all I did, you know how innocent I am. All I did was ask a question for clarification. Right? And immediately, this guy across the table from me shoots me this scowl and he says to me, So did God already tell you how this is supposed to turn out? And uh, I prayed, you know, thunder and lightning. You know, you just get grace in the moment for that kind of stuff. Uh, There wasn't a button that he could push on that day in me about that. And I, you know, just responded to him with grace. And, um, you know, we went about things. And the point being this, friends, you run into that all the time unless you're a secret agent Christian. Okay? And I know some of you are undercover. But if and when you go public and people know, they absolutely look at you in a certain way to see, you know, they're looking for the hypocrisy piece and just to kind of categorize you away in the way they've, uh, you know, unveiled your hypocrisy or what, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying you have to go around paranoid about it. I'm just saying that's the reality. If you're going to be on mission, if you're going to be upfront and overt about, hey, I'm a follower of Christ. And, you know, what can I say? He, he has brought more into my life than I could ever have imagined or ever dreamt. And I'm just grateful for it. And I'd love for anybody else that wants that kind of thing to be able to have it. That, that's it. I'm not going to force feed, cram down your throat, make you bend the knee. I'm not going to do any of that kind of stuff. But I live a good news story, and I'm, I'm pleased to be able to share that good news. And so you will run into that kind of stuff in your social circles, certainly in your work circles, in neighborhood circles, and so on it goes. But uh, Jesus said it will also happen with the government. How many of you know it's happening more and more now? How many of you know that uh, cities and municipalities... Uh, who are dependent upon taxes to build their budgets uh, are now looking at churches who don't pay those taxes and absolutely claiming by domain those properties and putting a Walmart, a Home Depot, or whatever in their place. Happens all over the place now. In Canada and in parts of Europe, they have already enacted legislation that makes it a hate crime. For you to call certain activities or behaviors sin. Hate crime. And I'm not talking about uh, them trying to suppress only. I'm talking about arrest. I'm talking about ministers who have stood right where I'm standing, just across the border, and said, uh, the Bible says this behavior is sin. And they get arrested and go to jail. And so it raises the question, as we, you know, broaden the definition of hate crimes and, uh, you know, intolerance in the, in the uh, couch of, of tolerance, where are you going to stand? Who are you going to be? Are you going to pay the price 
Now, let me hasten to say, here's how we get at that. You can't just muster up and say, okay, you know, grit your teeth and white knuckle it and go, I'm going to pay the price. It doesn't work that way. Because you're the sheep in the midst of wolves. You have no wherewithal. You don't have the goods. You don't have the power. You don't have the know-how to be his ambassador and on mission with him. He holds all the power, all the authority, all the wisdom, all the goods. And the way that we go about this is that he bestows the goods on us and we live in his power, in his grace, in his wherewithal. And the way the, the way the Bible describes that coming upon us and then uh, working its way through us is character. See, our Lord is not just concerned about behaviors, who's being good, who's being bad, who's doing right, who's doing wrong. But what kind of man are you becoming? What kind of woman are you becoming inside to out? What kind of character, what kind of integrity? And so here's what you see in the text. He says, you're going to have to be as wise as serpents. Now, when he talks about wisdom like that, that's not this academic, how much knowledge have I got crammed in the brain? But rather, and and let me just make quick reference to some other passages across the Bible that uh, unpacks what that wisdom looks like. It's like the guy who built his house upon the rock, not the guy who built his house upon the sand. The guy who built his house upon the rock was the wise guy. The guy who built his house upon the sand was the foolish. In other words, upon what are you building your life? What's going to be the foundation? The wise person is building his life on the rock of the person of Christ. We're also told in Matthew 25 that... um, in this little parable of stories about the virgins attending uh, a wedding reception where they're waiting on the bridegroom and, and half of them don't have sufficient oil in their lamps because it's approaching midnight. And the other half of them do. And the point being, the wise person is the one who is prepared for when the works, the person, the spontaneity of God comes. When you get into Romans, the wise person is the one who realizes if there's anything good coming through my life, it's not me. I don't have those kind of capabilities and sufficiency. It comes from him. And so anytime I'm operating in the will and in the way of God by his grace, and I'm a little bit loving towards somebody, I'm a little bit compassionate toward them, they find help and hope in me. Sometimes they literally will turn to me and go, you know, you're awesome. Thank you. I I love you. You know, these kinds of things. And I'm like, time out. I just have to hasten to say, I'm not that good. If you've had any sense of blessing come through my life, that's because God's been good to you. And I've just been a little conduit of that. I, I have to be very upfront about that because that's the wise person that gets it. It's not inherent to me. It comes from him. I could go on and on and on, but you begin to get the picture that wisdom doesn't have to do with what you know. It has to do with whom you know and how you engage him and how he begins to work through your life. And then he says you've got to have innocence. Wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. And and by that, he means that there's no duplicity. There's not this double-minded thing that I'm going to do a little bit of the mission of God because... 
That'll have this group of people think about me in a certain kind of way. It'll build on my reputation. I'll be able to have this kind of advance or this kind of gain in this market share for whatever work I do. You've seen all that stuff happen in churches. He goes, no, 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 no. Innocence has, it literally means no mixture. No mixture. You're not mixing other, it's just pure Know God, love God, do life with God, be on mission for God. It's just that pure kind of thing. And then he says, you've also got to be able to endure. The one who continues to be on mission for me until the day that I come, the the day that I return, until life is over, he's the one that's saved. He's the one that truly has my saving grace on his life. How do you know? That someone has a legitimate new birth from God and they are God's son or God's daughter. They endure. Jesus says it many, many times across the Bible. And listen, when you're, when you're serving him, when you're pouring your life out, when you're taking hits, when it gets to be hard, when sometimes you're wondering if it's worth it and so on like that, uh, you, you get tempted to quit. And Jesus said, here's the character that's going to be necessary to be on mission. You've got to endure. You can't quit. And then he says it's also one that will trust. Because you will be in situations where you will not know what to do. Trust me. I'll show you what to do. You'll be in situations where you will not know what to say. Trust me. I'll give you the words to say. You see, all the time I run into people that that want to tell me, You know, I want to do this mission thing. I I really want to live like this wholehearted thing for God. I just don't know enough. Friends, it's not about how much you know. It's about how much you will live. If you will live the amount you know, God will continue to show you everything else you need to know. It's a trust thing. And then finally, it's a mobility thing. That is to say, I will allow him to use me in this situation for as long as he wants to use me in this situation. This little context of relationships, this little cubicle, this little uh, corner of my neighborhood, this little recreational circle. And then when God's ready and he wants to move me to this situation, I'm not going to be so attached. Oh, God, I don't want to leave this situation. I'll go to this situation. Because Jesus said to those in Matthew 10 that were on mission for him. There will be those times where I'm just going to uproot you and move you on. I need you to be ready to move on. Now, you cannot muster this stuff up. You cannot flex your muscles and white knuckle it and, and make it happen. This has to come out of a passion for Jesus and for his mission. And you go, well, gee, I don't know that I feel that passion. Let me take you down this little path that lets you see how you get there. To know Jesus is to love Him. You get to know Him, you will love Him. To love Jesus is to trust Him. When you begin to engage relationally with Him and and you're knowing His love upon your life and you're expressing your heart in love in return as best you know how, there will be this bank account of trust into which He makes great deposits in which you get to make great withdrawals. 
And to trust Jesus, then, is to follow him into his mission. You will be passionate about him, and you will be passionate about his mission. You say, well, uh, honestly, I just don't have that much passion about that. Then you're not in situations where you're having to trust him. Because if you're in situations where you're having to trust him and he keep, keeps coming through for you time and time again, and I needed him, ooh, he, he came through, and I needed him, ooh, he came through. I mean, this heart of gratitude thing begins to grow to such an extent. You can't do anything but follow him. You, you, the debt of gratitude, the, the sense of, of, of delight that you have in the way that he's provided for you, it just thrusts you into that kind of passion. And if that's not there, it's because you're not, you're not trusting Him. You're not in situations where you have to trust Him and you're exercising trust. And if that's not happening, that's because you're not loving Him. So you just back it up. Because if you loved Him, He would be, as, as He's doing life and you're like lovingly walking with Him and doing life with Him, He takes you into situations where you have to trust and so if you're not going with him into those situations, then you don't, you're not really having this love thing happen with him. This whole connected intimacy kind of thing. And if that's not happening, friends, that's because you don't really know him. Because if you, if you knew him, you would be sucked into loving him, engaging him. And you go, well, okay. Then say something about knowing. Well, then that backs it up one more. Where Jesus said, if you will seek me, you will find me. If you want to know me, just seek. You'll find. Just ask. Keep on asking. You'll receive. Keep on knocking. It'll be open to you. Do you know him? Do you love Him? Do you trust Him? Are you following Him and on mission with Him? Now listen. I know that somebody's got to be sitting there thinking that this was Father's Day, right? Were we talking about dads and root beer and, you know, having a great time and uh, I'm going to go and have lunch and, you know, what happened to the family thing and, you know, uh, the little sentimental stories about dads and all that kind of stuff? Let me just say, I love all that. (laughs) I mean, we've done that from time to time. I love that. But I'm a man under authority. I actually don't get to choose what I talk about from week to week. You go, well, I want to know who's on that board that tells you what to talk about. (laughs) Well, um, they don't sit in this room. (laughs) Because this is Jesus' church. And I promise you, I spend a lot of time studying the book and praying about what Jesus wants me to say at any given point. But I spend as much time, sometimes more, just on not what does it say, but what do you want me to say? And... and For reasons that he knows, he has led us to be in the book of Matthew for months now. And when we began to work up to Father's Day, and it was going to be this text, I'm like, 
Lord, that's not, you know, a real fathery kind of message. And honestly, it seemed like the Lord communicated to my heart. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, it is. Because you see what we need most are men of God and women of God who will parent us. Men of God and women of God who will come alongside of us as brothers and sisters. And to encourage us and to support us and to be with us in fulfilling the destiny that God has for us. That's the greatest good. That's the greatest thing that we can give to a child or to anyone else that we care about and love. This is what I've sought to give to my own kids. And I stood on a platform just like this when they were little guys. And we dedicated ourselves to be the kind of parents that would seek to instill these things to be able to know God, love God, trust God, do mission and life with God. It doesn't get any more core to who He is and what He's about with us than what we've talked about today. Have you ever been a part of a great team or organization? Have you ever been a part of a great church? Before I die, I want to be a part of a great church. I want to be the kind of person who lives with others so that it's a great church. To the glory of Jesus. So, will you? Will you stop doing life on your own? Turn around, go a different direction, and do it with Jesus. Repent and follow. Will you pay the price to care, to risk, to invest yourself in Christ's mission? I run into people all the time who are bored with church, bored with worship. Bored with their small group. Bored with the whole idea of faith. And friends, and I don't mean it harshly, I don't mean it in a critical way, I just mean it in a factual way. If you are bored, you are not on mission. Because when you are on mission, when you're pouring it out, When you're caring, when you're allowing your heart to be broken over busted lives and lost lives and separated from God lives and and, and you're investing yourself and, and, and you're giving of yourself, then you can't wait to gather with others that are doing the same thing on Sunday and worship the one for whom it's all done.
You can't wait to get into your small group and share stories and pray for one another and put an arm around and encourage and help with the endurance factor. You can't wait to carry out the task that God's given you on this ministry team or on that ministry team. Because it's become your DNA. It's become who you are. It is your character. But I know that's true, friends. It gets boring. It can be dry as dust. This book can seem so irrelevant unless you're on mission. And then it's totally alive. It's totally invigorating. It's totally got power as God unpacks things for you. So will you pay that price? Will you endure? Some of you are tired. Some of you are running on fumes. Some of you are coasting. And let me just be really clear. Coasting, where I still show up and attend a meeting and, you know, I'm kind of on the sideline, but I'm not in the game. Coasting is not enduring. Coasting is staying in proximity to those who do endure. Will you endure? Let me pray for you. Father, you know my heart. I just feel such affection for those in the house today. And I feel so hope-filled about the plans that you have for each one. For the eternal difference you're looking to build and to, to make through them into the lives of others. So God, uh, thank you for calling us to mission. Thank you for making it clear what it will cost. And now we confess how desperately needy we are for you in order to pay the price for mission. Lord, I pray that there will be yeses uttered in the hearts all around this room. Yes to the mission. Yes to the call. Yes to obedience. Yes to all the minutia of how you would order and direct our lives. In Jesus' name.